Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, it says it's time to begin, so I will get us started. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate so much your interest in uh, this topic and the things I have to share. And I trust that it will be beneficial to you and relevant to your ministry context and your personal life. That's the goal, anyway, to talk about something that that is certainly appeared on my radar and has become a concern to me. And I think it's a concern for a lot of us, uh, particularly in this country right now related to the exercise of power and the way uh, power is dividing the church as well as our culture as a whole because we we seem to always struggle knowing how to balance our politics and our piety we seem to struggle to know how the two ought to interface how the two ought to relate and we disagree with each other strenuously over how they ought to impact each other and relate. And David just seems to be a very convenient figure of someone who shared that struggle and who at times I think uh, was very successful at integrating his piety in politics and at other times failed miserably. And so no matter what you're doing, you can relate to David. And we're going to look at David as as a way of thinking about power and the way God would have us interact with power in the political sphere, in the religious sphere, and how they ought to relate to each other. So those are, that's kind of an overview. Let me pray for our time together, and then I want to get started kind of showing you how we're going to go about doing this. Father in heaven, we thank you for this event, for the way it brings so many of us together from uh, all over the country and perhaps even from different parts of the world and gives us a, a, a place to gather, and gives us something to focus on together, and opportunities to converse and share ideas and build bridges. And we ask that your Spirit would facilitate those connections as we seek to make them and strengthen them as we're here. Bless all those that have prepared and are speaking to us. May their teachings uh, hit the mark, and may we have receptive hearts. And I pray particularly for the session that we're going to have in this next hour May your hand be upon me, give me wisdom, and I pray for those who have gathered here to hear that that your spirit would move among us and help us to hear you speak to our hearts just what we need at this moment. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So this this kind of thing has been discussed, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, from both sides of the political spectrum. one who represents uh, a democratic point of view be Jim Wallace, who wrote the book God's Politics several years ago, and it's become kind of a classic in this area where he's wrestling with the way the church handles politics and some of his um, disillusionment with the way the church handles politics and the kind of division that it caused. And his perspective has been a valuable one to me, though I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of it. He's really helped me to think a little differently about it. And then, of course, you see things like this, little pens that say Jesus for president, And if you're like me, if you're like me, you cringe a little, maybe a lot, when you see the way the church enters into the political fray, sometimes without adequate thought, sometimes without adequate caution, sometimes without adequate self-understanding. And it it creates a lot of problems within the church. It creates a lot of problems in, in the church's relationship with the larger world. And I think we all can sense that This is something we've been wrestling with. 
In fact, if you notice, a lot of the sessions that uh, we're holding uh, during this lectureship are dealing with particular manifestations of this deeper phenomenon. And what I'm trying to do with the session uh, today is uh, I want to honor the theme of the lectureship and focus on David, but at the same time I want to show how that David might be a way of getting at what may be at the root of a lot of these specific issues that are being discussed in other sessions. Those specific issues need to be discussed, certainly, and they need to be addressed on their own terms. But sometimes I wonder if, if those aren't really parts of a more systemic problem, and that if we understood uh, the root issues, it might facilitate our addressing the symptoms. So that's kind of the attempt today. I think David can help us do that. But I just want to, just want to note that some of the aspects of this issue in our culture right now that I'm hoping David can help us face and, and think about, depending on where you are on the political spectrum, you may be advocating various ideas regarding faith's role in the public square, uh, religion's role in politics. And, and one thing that is certainly very prevalent these days is what I like to call the privatization of faith. It's this idea that keep your faith out of it. Let your faith is your own business. Don't let faith affect your public policy. Don't let faith affect the way you vote. All right? So y'all are familiar with this point of view, right? So that's, that's out there. So that's one way that people try to handle this uh, difficulty, this delicate balance. Of course, on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have what I might call the politicization of faith, where um, faith itself becomes primarily political. It's primarily about being political. Discipleship uh, of Jesus is measured primarily in terms of activism and weighing in on social issues and having those wretched posts on social media, right? right? Where you express your, your views and you take on the world, okay? That's another approach that people have taken. Um, the Constantinian model. Are you all familiar with this idea of the Constantinian model? It's where, it's where church and state have just become so merged that they're practically one. Right, the idea of a Christian state, statism, you might say, where uh, the, the church seeks to hold the reins of political power. Right? And this, this model is still alive and well, and it's still being practiced in, in sectors. It's still advocated uh, within our own country among some Christians, isn't it? This idea of restoring a Christian nation is, a, is not an uncommon thing, or getting back to our Judeo-Christian roots. Right. And using the fact that there are, I think, undeniably Judeo-Christian foundations to our country, but using that as a basis for a kind of Constantinian model. All right. Uh, and I think I think there's a lot of us that would pause about that and would have difficulty embracing that. Uh, on the other extreme, there's what you might call the Anabaptist model, which is basically non-participation. Right. This is um, we are not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and for those reasons, we have no business mixing it up with worldly power. We have no, we have no business interjecting ourselves into the world's skirmishes about how it conducts its ungodly and secular affairs, right? But I think, I think a lot of us would, be, would not feel exactly comfortable with that either, because it seems like any legitimate enterprise is one in which Christians ought to be able to engage, uh, that in the interest of being salt and light, 
every legitimate endeavor is one in which Christ needs to exert his sovereignty and influence, and he does that, of course, through his people. So you can see none of these are entirely satisfying, are they? I mean, I think we have something to learn from each of them, but in the way that they currently manifest themselves and the, and the, the way they are absolutized, I think we all have uh, a certain justification in being uh, hesitant to embrace any of these models as the answer. And so we, we have to ask ourselves some difficult questions. It seems clear from all these different points of view that there seems to be some sense that our faith should somehow inform every aspect of our lives, including our politics. But we, we seem to struggle particularly in this area with how exactly should faith can uh, inform our politics? How should that happen in a way that is healthy, both for our politics and for our faith? And then the question, what is the proper relationship between public service or participation in politics and government and the believer's allegiance to the kingdom of God? Because that's the bigger question, right? I mean, I think we would all agree here that yes, our, our allegiance is first and foremost to the kingdom of God. But I, am, I, I have to be more concerned about the global spread of the kingdom than I am about America's stability. I simply have to be. Because America's not going to remain forever and the kingdom of God will. Right? That's just that. We just need to come to terms with that fact. America, like every other power, is a worldly power. God has a purpose for it. But that time will come to an end and it will be replaced by another or Christ will come either way. But either way, this is a limited exercise of power, right? And then it's going to be eclipsed by the kingdom of God just as we read all over the scriptures is eventually to happen. But certainly the kingdom of God, our, our citizenship in the kingdom of God does not preclude a, um, a salutary presence and participation in this world. Isn't that right? Just as Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? He indicated that there's, there is a, there's an important way to witness in this world as good citizens of the place God placed you. But never does that citizenship, no pun intended here, trump your citizenship in heaven, right? Okay. So we, these are the questions that will, that will kind of occupy us as we look at David's story and we look at David as a model of someone who had the same kind of struggle and didn't always exercise his politics in a faithful way, and sometimes did, and, and the way God interacts with David will often be the indicator of that. Eugene Peterson, who has now gone on to be with the Lord, as I, I many of you are aware, this past year he passed away, uh, but someone that has deeply impacted me, a lot of his, his books and his writings have been influential for a lot of us, but he said something in, in a book he wrote years ago, a book on the book, it's, it's his little book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. But he said something in that book that has always stuck with me because it kind of caught me off guard because at the time I read this, I was kind of in my apolitical mode where I didn't think faith should have anything to do with politics or vice versa. And he kind of challenged me with this statement when he said in this book, the kingdom of God is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. And yes, just like you all are doing now, I kind of had to scratch my head and think about that for a while, right? How could the kingdom of God not be political, right? When in fact, it comes to displace the power structures of this world. 
to pass judgment on them for their failure to bring about the justice that God wishes to see and the equity that God wishes to enact, how could it not be political? But it doesn't do politics in the way the world does politics. And neither should we. The kingdom does politics through the way of the cross. Right? And what we see in the story of David, I believe, is someone who has good instincts in that regard, but who struggles when he comes to power to remain faithful to them. I think that's a pretty good description of David, don't, don't you think? I think David had really good instincts when it came to this idea of exercising power in a way that imitated the way Yahweh exercised power. But then when he came to power, he struggled to remain faithful to those instincts and that commitment. All right, so that's, that's what I want to look at as we turn our attention now. The interesting thing about David is almost everything about David is political. Even, even the history of David is political. And a, a good place to start would be to talk about how that even, even the question as to whether a King David existed, whether there was such a thing as a united kingdom in ancient Israel, has been called into question. And biblical scholarship uh, at the present is, is embroiled in a pretty heated debate over the historicity of David. And the interesting thing about it is, this is, no, this is not purely an academic discussion. In fact, I would even say that this, this discussion, I would say, has not even primarily been motivated by some kind of evidence, some kind of new evidence that has been found that would call into question whether or not there was a united monarchy started by David. Technically by Saul, but, but particularly embodied by David, right? I think it's politics that has raised this issue. And for that reason, it's relevant to our topic. And so I want to start here. So Thomas Thompson is just one of a, of a number of scholars who have suggested reconsidering what we really have in the, in the Old Testament. And he wrote this book called The Messiah Myth. And let me just show you a little excerpt from this, a little quote from this to give you an idea of what we're talking about. He says, uh, today we no longer have a history of Israel. Not only have Adam and Eve and the flood story passed over to mythology, but we can no longer talk about a time of the patriarchs. There never was a united monarchy in history, and it is meaningless to speak of pre-exilic prophets in their writings. In short, the Bible is not a history of anyone's past. And again, in history, neither Jerusalem nor Judah ever shared an identity with Israel before the rule of the Hasmoneans in the Hellenistic period. The stories of Solomon and David, and even the story of good King Josiah, must wait for the second century John Hyrcanus before they can find an historical context that makes sense. It is only a Hellenistic Bible that we know. That, admittedly, that is a rather extreme view, but it is not entirely unrepresentative of a number of scholars who are raising real questions about whether or not there is anything historical in the Hebrew Bible. Can you see the politics in this? Here's a, here's a couple of other examples. Um, there are some scholars that have, are, that have kind of referred to David almost like the King Arthur of the Hebrew Bible. Peter Davies is another one who shares similar views as those of Thompson's when he says, I am not the only scholar who suspects that the figure of King David is about as historical as King Arthur. A very legendary figure. Perhaps no history to him at all. And uh, what's interesting is, is, that, is that Thompson and Davies are primarily literary scholars, are primarily dealing with texts. But a similar thing, a parallel phenomenon, is happening in archaeology, 
And so the person that is, uh, that is pictured here on the, on the left of my screen, Israel Finkelstein, is, uh, holds a distinguished chair of archaeology at the Tel Aviv University. And uh, his work has launched what many now call the Tel Aviv School. And what they've done is they've called into question the dating of many monumental structures. Um, and they've introduced what is known as a low chronology of the ancient Israelite monarchy. So what, I, what I'm saying here is, is that there, there are a number of sites, a number of uh, artifacts that have been uncovered by archaeology that were uh, pretty well agreed upon to be datable back to the 10th or 9th centuries, which would correspond to a time of a united monarchy. And his, his archaeological uh, revisions or, or reconsiderations of these have suggested that they're actually later than that by at least 100 years, maybe 200, and now he's dating these same things into the 8th century. All right? And what I'm wondering is, how are these related? Because it's very interesting because Finkelstein doesn't really have a lot to go on in terms of actual evidence that would suggest you need to redate them. It seems to me to be a little bit more ideological. And so here are some reflections on just that, just your, just your orientation here to this debate that's going on currently in Old Testament scholarship about whether or not we can even speak of a historical David or even a historical United Monarchy. So some things to think about is what is driving this revision of the dating of these structures associated with David and the United Monarchy? And these rereading of the texts so that they're, they're no longer seen to reflect anything really historical. And I want to suggest that politics may have a lot to do with it. In fact, I feel sure that it, that it does. Uh, William Devers, uh, who is a, a world-renowned archaeologist of the Syro-Palestinian region and taught for years at the University of Arizona, is now retired. Uh, but William Devers is by no means uh, what you would consider an evangelical Christian. He doesn't really have a, a, a dog in this fight with regard to like some kind of personal ideology. But he is one archaeologist who has dated some of these structures to the 10th century, 9th century. And he, interestingly, in his book, Who Were the Ancient Israelites and When Did They Appear? When Did They Come Into the Land? He, he makes this observation. He has the suspicion that much of this is an attempt to delegitimize Israeli claims to the land. Would that make sense? Yeah, actually, it would make, it would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Um, especially, and, and, and it doesn't really matter. Of course, Israel Finkelstein is a Jewish archaeologist, but he might want to delegitimize these claims just for the sake of trying to alleviate tensions between Palestinian and Jews. Can you understand the, the thinking there? Um, so this could be academic groundwork for a particular ideology and solution to the ongoing conflict in the Levant. So just, just to make you aware, politics has become so pervasive. Political ideologies and political allegiances have become so primary for people, so, so important that it, it, it seems to overshadow all else and it seems to affect all else, even our scholarship. And that's a problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a problem when, when political loyalties, political allegiances, distorts the truth, right? Distorts our ability to weigh evidence with some kind of objectivity. Now, of course, we all know that none of us has perfect objectivity, right? The Enlightenment, we, we've gotten beyond that. We're, we're all postmodern. We recognize that we all have a particular slant. But the whole point in recognizing that is to do what? To mitigate it as much as possible and to make room for other points of view. That is not what this is doing. <laughs> that is not what this is doing. 
And this demonstrates how that our, we need to be aware of how our political leanings and our political loyalties affect the way we read Scripture, affect the way we apply Scripture. And this self-awareness is an important spiritual exercise that allows the Spirit to run our spiritual development and our Christian lives rather than our politics. I don't know about you, but I want the Holy Spirit to be in charge of my spiritual maturation and development, not my politics, right? But we've got to, be, we've got to become aware of just how pervasive our politics are influencing us in all these ways. So the next question then is, what evidence is there to support the plausibility of a united monarchy somewhat along the lines of what the Bible describes? And there's actually, there's actually a lot. It may even be surprising to you that, that some of this is not being taken more seriously than it is. But just some uh, fairly recent things that have been going on in the study of David and his context that shed some light on these issues. Uh, a very well-known scholar by the, by the name of Andre Lemaire, and his, his specialty is in ancient paleography. He, he specializes in reading ancient texts, ancient, um, ancient uh, inscriptions of various scripts. So he's, he's really a specialist in ancient scripts. He's working on a critical edition of something called the Misha inscription. Have, have you all ever heard of this, the Moabite stone? It's a very well-known and very important biblical artifact that, that sits over in the Louvre in Paris that has a parallel in 2 Kings. And it's an important text because it confirms the existence of Israel at this time and conflict that, that she was having with Moab. So it's interesting that during the course of, of, of making this critical edition of the Misha inscription, he came upon a damaged part of the text that people have been having difficulty reconstructing. And through careful analysis, he came to the conclusion that that damaged part of the text should read House of David. Now, what, what would this mean? This would mean that in a text from the ninth century that is extra biblical, right? It's not Israelite at all. It's Moabite, right? So no, Moabites don't care whether David existed or not. Right? And yet, something called the House of David is being mentioned in 840 BC. Why would that be so if there were no David? Then, um, just a couple of years after that, an interesting thing happened. A new discovery at Tel Dan uh, was unearthed, literally unearthed. The Tel Dan inscription, which dates to 870 to 750, somewhere in that range. So it would be about the same time as the Misha inscription. And what's really interesting about this is this undisputably and very clearly contains the phrase, the house of David. All right. And, and again, we're way back into the ninth century here, aren't we? Uh, and then in addition to this, Eilat Mazar's excavations in the city of David sector of Jerusalem have revealed a palatial structure that can be dated back to the 10th century. So I'm just going to give you quick pictures of each of these because I know that this is, this is not stuff that, that is maybe of particular interest to you. But, but for those of us who think it's important that there be some connection between the biblical text and, and, and the historical events they claim to, to report and represent, these are, these are important. This is the Moabite stone. This is what it looks like. This is, uh, this is the script that was common to Canaan and Moab and Ammon and Israel uh, before the exile. And this is the text that Lemaire is working on. And he is, like, he's down here where you have some damage to the text. He thinks that he, can, he, he has found House of David. And then, uh, and boy, this guy's a top, everybody agrees Andre Lemaire is the best when it comes to, uh, to reading scripts. So I'm not going to disagree with him. If he says it says the house of David, then I think it says the house of David. It says Beit David. 
It says Beit David, that's what it says. Um, here is the Teldan inscription. And it, I will admit that it, it has been, um, I think they have penciled it in a little bit to make the writing clearer, but you can see very clearly in the section of the text that reads clearly Beit David is right here. And Beit, Beit is the Hebrew word for house, you know, Beit. And this is what you have here, Beit David. Ninth century text. Now, of course, you may wonder, well, what do these, uh, what do these scholars who deny David say about this? Well, they say it doesn't mean that. It means something else. They, 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 you know, they feel obliged to try to explain the evidence away. And then this, uh, this wonderful female archaeologist from Jerusalem, Elat Mazar, has been excavating in the oldest section of Jerusalem called the City of David. And in her excavations, she has uncovered uh, fragments of proto-aeolic capitals. And what's interesting about these proto-aeolic capitals is that they're the, they're the kind of... They're the kind of tops to pillars that you would only expect to find on monumental structures. Now, by monumental structures, what we mean are uh, royal palaces, royal archives, things, things that were particularly expensive and difficult to make, things that those who adopt a low chronology argue could not have happened uh, prior to the 8th century, and yet these have been dated to the 10th or 9th. And then there's a new site... Um, well, relatively new site that's being excavated called Kibet Kayafa, which reveals an immense palace complex. And this is, this is very close to the Valley of Elah. This is very close to where David and Goliath are, are, are said to have had their confrontation. So it's a, it's a location that's, that's very closely associated with David and, and the stories about David. And it reveals this immense palace complex, clearly dating to the late 10th century or early 9th centuries, which should have been impossible according to the proponents of this low chronology. So there's actually a lot going on right now in the field of archaeology that would suggest that we shouldn't be too hasty to dismiss the text that we're about to read as having no relationship to history whatsoever. Now, once again, we have to be clear that their relationship to history is not straightforward either. Uh, there is propaganda here. Anytime that you're talking about a political figure, anytime you're talking about um, a dynasty that you wish to uphold, that you wish to support, what's obviously going to enter into the reportage? Propaganda. So you can expect to see that uh, in these texts. But just because there's an element of propaganda to them doesn't mean that they have no relationship to history whatsoever. And that's, that's kind of what we're wanting to, to see here now. Now, let, let's get to the real issue that I want to talk about, having, having set aside some of the questions about how seriously should we take these texts? To what extent can we trust them to report a real person who had a real struggle with power and politics and piety? And I think we have shown that we can take them seriously, that we have good reason for, for reading them as, as representing something of a, a real past, of a real people and a real leader that they looked up to and admired as being a kind of model for them about how to navigate this difficult terrain. And it can serve that for us as well. So as we acknowledge the possibility of some propaganda here, we also don't want to dismiss the historical value. So there are, there are basically the following things I want to look at with you, and we may not finish these today, and if not, we'll, we'll continue this tomorrow, if you would be so kind as to return. But I want to talk about how David acquired power, how David exercised power, and how David abused power. And then finally talk a little bit about a paradox of power that you see 
uh, in David's closing reflections on his deathbed as he's about to hand the kingdom over to Solomon in the speech that he gives to him in 1 Kings chapter 1, all of which give us a sense of some things that we can learn from him. But let's begin by talking about how David acquired power, because this is actually a fascinating, a fascinating development in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. <laughs> now, David first comes to prominence in our story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and Chris Smith did a marvelous job of opening this story up for us last night, if you were there to hear his keynote. Um, but I want to talk about something that he didn't touch on, because it's actually not found directly in this text. But I want, you to, I want you to see something in, what, in the way David deals with the confrontation of the Philistines and Goliath that I think is very important and is crucial to understand with regard to how David viewed power. It does touch on something that Chris Smith said, but I want to make a, a slightly different point from it. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 51, David, a Yahweh worshiper, is facing Goliath, a Philistine, a Dagon worshiper, and you must never forget this. Every, every battle, every confrontation in the ancient Near East was understood to be a reflection of a conflict between the gods. So when David faces Goliath, everybody involved understands that Yahweh is facing Dagon. Right? Yahweh, represented by David, is coming into crucial spiritual battle with Dagon, represented by Goliath. Now, I want you to notice what transpires in this battle. David successfully knocks down Goliath, takes Goliath's sword from its sheath, and then decapitates Goliath. That sounds eerily familiar to something that happened much earlier in the book of Samuel. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. Do you remember what happened in this, in this scenario? What happened here was the Israelites were going out to battle against the Philistines. They lose round one. They regroup and they say, oh, I know what we did wrong. We didn't take the Ark of the Covenant out to battle with us. And so they get Hophni and Phinehas to get the Ark and to carry out it out into battle, right? You all remember this? Do you, do you realize what they just did? We did not involve Yahweh in our war the first time. Maybe if we had his sponsorship, it will go better for us. If, 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 if we can just get Yahweh to underwrite our politics, if we can just get Yahweh to be on our side, if we could just get Yahweh to decide to put an R or a D or an I beside his name, we would have it, right? And so what they do is they recruit Yahweh to become their political hack. Well, there's something you need to know about Yahweh. He stalwartly refuses to be the poster child for anyone's favorite cause, right? And so it goes very badly. Not only do they lose the battle, but Hophni and Phinehas are both killed, and the ark is seized by the Philistines and is taken as plunder and is placed in Dagon's temple at Dagon's feet. Symbolizing what? That Yahweh has been defeated by Dagon. And then what happens? Dagon falls over before the ark. Philistines pick him back up, nail him down. No, no, Dagon, you don't bow before Yahweh. You're the winner. 
Next day, Dagon falls again, but this time his head is severed from the trunk of his body. What did we just see? What Yahweh did to Dagon's idol, Yahweh's worshiper did to Goliath. The precedent for David's confrontation with Goliath was set in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, where Yahweh showed David, this is what happens. This is what you do, right? He falls, the opposition falls, head is cut off. David does precisely the same thing when he, when he faces Goliath. Does it make sense? David imitated Yahweh. And this becomes a pattern. In fact, one of the things that you'll notice is the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's throne, right? You, you all, are you all aware of the symbolism of the Ark? The Ark of the Covenant is the footstool for God's throne. So whenever the Ark goes out, the idea is, is that it's like a sedan chair. God, Yahweh is being lifted up by his people and carried on a sedan chair as, as evidence of his royalty and majesty and glory, right? But the interesting thing is that what the Ark does in the books of Samuel, David tends to do. All right. And this is interesting because Jesus says something uh, along these lines in John 5, 19. That I think is very interesting and in that I think he learned from this tradition. Jesus is, after all, the son of David. And when you hear Jesus talk about power and authority, I want you to listen to the way he talks about it because this, this principle of where David imitates Yahweh. David looks at what Yahweh is doing and he tries to follow suit in, in his reign. Jesus says this when his authority is questioned by the religious establishment of Jerusalem. This is in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is, this is a good place to start, I think, with regard to how to function, how to, how to exercise power, how to, how to think about power in the world. Look at what the Father is doing. Look at how the Father uses power. Look at how the Father confers and exercises his authority in the world and do the same thing. Use power in the same way, with the same character, with the same motives that, with which Yahweh does them. And you see this in David in this first episode where we can begin to see David's rise to power because from this point on, he becomes a kind of juggernaut, doesn't he? As, he? as he proceeds and moves forward and becomes more and more popular among the masses of Israel until finally he is able to eclipse Saul. So that's one thing to notice. But as a second thing to notice as things, things start to heat up because Saul begins to recognize David's popularity and Saul, of course, becomes deeply uh, jealous of David leading to the, uh, the conflict between the two of them. And as a result, David finds himself on the run on more than one occasion uh, in order to preserve his life. But there's, there's this wonderful little, little paragraph at the beginning of one of these stories of where David has to flee because of uh, Saul's jealous rage. And I want you to listen to the way it describes this experience that David had when he was on the run in the Judean wilderness and looking desperately for a place where he could hide, where he could avoid the, uh, 
the jealous and wrathful intents of his opponent Saul. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now look at verse 2 in particular. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. What kind of people did David attract? What kind of people felt themselves drawn to David? I mean, remember now, David is a fugitive. He's not in a position to help anyone himself, right? He's not in a position to help anyone. He's a fugitive himself. He's on the run from Saul. And yet, the outcasts of Israel, the depressed, the endangered, the most vulnerable, what did they they desperately want to do? They wanted to find where David was and join him. Do you see that? Who does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of? Does that remind you of someone who attracted people who were down and out and powerless, who were the victims of a power-hungry world that chewed them up and spat them out? And yet they were drawn to Jesus, and Jesus made them the very basis of his kingdom, didn't he? So when we think about how David acquired power, we have to realize he did it, first of all, by imitating Yahweh. And because he imitated Yahweh, he became a shelter uh, for the afflicted and a source of power for them. He empowered the afflicted because under, the, under David's leadership, what did, these, what did these weak, powerless people become? A force. A force to be reckoned with. A force that would eventually topple Saul's regime and replace it with David's. You see how all this is kind of working about. So we see in the development of Samuel that there's a very particular exercise of power. David is being portrayed as one who exercises power very differently than Saul does. And it's an exercise of power that at least in the early stages of this story are very pleasing to Yahweh and that Yahweh blesses. And it has these characteristics, imitation of Yahweh, sheltering of the, and empowering of the afflicted. But then there's this also. A couple of chapters later, we have this interesting situation where uh, Saul is pursuing David and Saul makes a a strategical error and places himself in a vulnerable spot that David easily could have exploited in order to eliminate Saul's competition uh, and and certainly expedite his rise to the throne. You all know the story I'm talking about. This happens on more than one occasion, but this is the first of these here. And 24. It's actually interesting. The first of these occurs in chapter 24. The second of these occurs in chapter 26. Guess what we have in between these two chapters? So, so Saul, Saul could have been killed by David in chapter 24. And then Saul could have been killed by David in chapter 26. And in neither of those cases does, does David take that opportunity to dispose of his enemy, right? In the middle of that, is chapter 25, of course, which is about Nabal. Do you remember Nabal? Yes. Nabal is the surly man that insults David and that David is about to kill, and then his wife Abigail comes out and talks David out of it, and David lets his enemy live. See a connection there? There's a, sync, there's a, there's a triad of stories here, a triad of stories here about David doing what? Sparing the life of an enemy. Right? And this is, this is David's rationale, at least with regard to Saul. 
in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6, his enemy, well, let me, let me start reading a little bit earlier here. Let's start in verse 4. This is 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 4. It says, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it, seem, as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Yahweh's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is Yahweh's anointed. And then, of course, later in chapter 26, verse 23, he says the same thing again, even more emphatically and with more conviction. So, um, beginning in verse 21 of 1 Samuel 26, after the second occasion when David could have killed Saul and didn't, it's, then Saul said, I have sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king, let one of the young men come over and take it. Yahweh rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for Yahweh gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. So look at, look at how David comes to power. David does not come to power by preempting Yahweh's right to rule through Saul. He waits. He waits for Yahweh to remove Saul rather than doing it himself. So David exemplifies a kind of restraint that you almost never see in the political realm, right? A kind of mercy for one's political enemy. Is that what we're seeing in our culture today? Mercy for one's political rival? Not at all. Um, a tendency to regard them as real human beings with legitimate concerns, even if they have different ways of uh, solving problems than you do? Not at all. And so what has happened here is we've forgotten that um, every human being has been created in the divine image. And therefore, every human being is in some sense the anointed of God and someone against whom we should not raise our hand. Right? Particularly our enemies. Who does that remind you of? How do you treat your enemies? A real test of whether you're exercising your power in a way that is godly, in a way that advances the kingdom of God and not just your political party. Let me say that again. A way of testing whether or not you're exercising power in a way that advances the kingdom of God and not just your own political interest is this. How are you treating your political rivals? Right? And so when we look at David treating his political rivals in this way, we see that David is at a point here where he is again imitating Yahweh. Demonstrating the merciful exercise of power that is designed to accomplish what is, what is the best outcome, the, the greatest good, not just for himself, but for the people over whom God has given him charge and their mission in the world. So that's, a, that's an interesting picture there of uh, how David acquires power. Now, the next thing to look at is how David exercised power. And there are two stories that are of interest here as we think about how David exercised power. Because always, when you're, when you're in a position of power, there's a great deal of stress involved, lots of difficult decisions. And um, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we have this um, remarkable story that you're probably familiar with, where David says at the beginning of this chapter, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziva, and they called him and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziva? And he said, I am. And the king said, is there, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to? Ziva said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziva said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel at Lodavar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel at Lodavar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now we're talking here about, about whom? Who is Mephibosheth? The only surviving member of the Saulai dynasty the only surviving minister of that dynasty that was the rival of David's. This is what you would call a political enemy. This is what you would call a potential threat to the stability of the Davidic dynasty. The Saulite house has proven itself on more than one occasion to be determined to undermine David's right to reign. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the very reason why Samuel was written, to legitimize David as ruler and to counter the opposition party's rhetoric because the opposition party is saying David stole the throne from Saul. David killed Saul. David did violence to the house of Saul. And can you see how that all these texts are saying what? Absolutely not. David never lifted a hand against Saul. In fact, he said on more than one occasion, I wouldn't do that because you are the Lord's anointed, right? A recognition that Saul did not reign on Saul's own authority. Saul reigned on whose authority? On Yahweh's authority. And therefore, David had no right to remove him by a coup and would not do it. And if David were going to reign, he would reign on whose authority? Yahweh's. And he therefore would not assert himself, right? But then we come down to this where he's now established. He's on the throne. He's in a position where he can orchestrate things to ensure that his reign continues for a long time, undisturbed and undisrupted by political rivals. And here he is confronted with a political rival, and what does he do? He restores to him the fortune due him from Saul's estate and says, there will be a seat for you at my table anytime you want. You're welcome to eat every meal at my table. Now, of course, one could say, aha, shrewd strategy. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And there may have been some of that to David. I won't deny it. But nonetheless, this is a kindness that David says he's showing not for those reasons, but for what reason? Because he felt a covenant obligation to the friendship he had in Jonathan, right? So just another interesting example of how David demonstrates what could be viewed as great integrity with regard to the exercise of his power, right? And he gives us a good model then to work on in that respect. And then David and Shimei in 2 Samuel chapter 16, when David is forced to flee Jerusalem uh, because Absalom has, has staged a coup. And as he's, as he's leaving Jerusalem in this humiliated state, 
to add insult to injury, another member of Saul's house, another relative of Saul, Shimei, is cursing David and throwing stones at him as he, as he has to leave the city. And uh, what happens here? Well, let's, ta- let's take a look at what David says when, his, um, when those accompanying him, those who remain loyal to him, uh, suggest what they should do. When King David came to Bahurim, uh, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on, on, the, on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Listen, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite Leave him alone and let him curse, for Yahweh has told him to. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. What have I to do with you, son of Zeruiah? Who does that, what does that sound like? Who does that remind you of? You remember that time when, in Luke 9, when he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's about to enter into a Samaritan village to seek lodging and they refuse him? And James and John say, do you want us to call down fire on this city for their refusal? (laughs) Right? Do you see how Jesus reflects the best of the David tradition, doesn't he? David reflects those moments when, when, I mean, Jesus reflects those moments as the son of David that David demonstrated his willingness to concede power to God and to exercise power only, only within the limits that Yahweh had allowed and to imitate Yahweh in the exercise of that power. Uh, then how, how David abused power? Well, this one's pretty obvious. This is the famous story, of course, of David's abuse of power. And, of course, David's abuse of power takes the form that it typically does in contemporary politics, and it usually has to do with sex. And, of course, you know the story. David takes advantage of Bathsheba. I don't know to what extent Bathsheba was a willing participant, but quite frankly, when you're the king, I don't think you have much choice. So it's fair to say that, that as, as, as a man in David's position, what was Bathsheba to do? So he takes advantage of her and then kills Uriah to cover it up. You, you know the story. And what's interesting about this is that when David engages in this treacherous act and he departs from his own standards of power, and we know that he does because when Nathan confronts him about it, David is, is caught in his own trap, right? His recognition of what should be done to a person who acts this way. But what, what's really important to realize here is that all this time, David has been operating off of a Deuteronomic ideal that I think we often forget about. Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, The tradition indicates that God had given a law to Israel regarding the nature of kingship. He anticipated that at some point Israel would desire to have a human king, and God allowed it. He allowed for it, but he put certain conditions on it, and we read about it 
in uh, Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. I want you to listen to this description of kingship as it's given by Deuteronomy. And I want you to think about how it influences two kings in particular, David and Solomon. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And that shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, this is the remarkable thing about Deuteronomy 17, these, this ideal for kingship that Yahweh established. Everything mentioned here in the ancient Near Eastern world was considered a mark of real power. So just think about it for a second. Um, the acquisition of horses. Well, that was the ancient Near Eastern tank. So stockpiling weapons, right? Stockpiling, a, a, a big military. Trusting in a big military. That's a sign of power. Um, creating alliances with strong neighbors so as to consolidate strength. Um, the acquisition of a large harem. Uh, virility. Sexual exploits has, has for a long time been considered a sign of machismo and an indication of great strength, hasn't it? And that's something that you see in ancient Near Eastern kings. The acquisition of great wealth, a thriving economy, is also considered to be a sign of divine blessing, a sign of great strength, a sign of, of, a, of a competent ruler. And these are all the things that Yahweh says that the Israelite king is to forego, that the Israelite king is to reject. Because the Israelite king does not draw his power from the size of his military, from the alliances he has with foreign nations. He does not draw his strength from his sexual virility and his harem. He draws his strength from this, that he has internalized the law of God to such an extent that it completely infuses his ideology of power and infects the way he exercises it. And where David fell is precisely where he departed from that Deuteronomic ideal. By the way, how many horses did Jesus have? How many alliances with foreign nations? How many wives? How much silver and gold? Jesus is the ideal king because he hyper-fulfills the ideal of kingship outlined in Deuteronomy 17. No wives, no military, no silver and gold. 
But let me tell you what Jesus had in spades. The law of God. So written on his heart. That when he was tempted three times by the devil in the wilderness to abuse his power. Jesus responded each time with a quotation from a single book of the Bible. Would you care to guess what book that was? Deuteronomy. Jesus went into the wilderness to face the devil, to engage in spiritual warfare armed with only two things, the Spirit of God and the book of Deuteronomy. And as you read David's story throughout Samuel, I think you see a similar thing. David, at his best, faces the challenges of leadership armed with the Spirit of God and with the Torah of God. So, let me just let me conclude by saying this. So, what do we learn from David? Well, we learn this, I think. First of all, you, you know that he is famously called uh, a man according to God's own heart, right? And I, I don't, I'm not sure we always understand exactly what that means. But... What this Hebrew idiom usually means is simply this. It's one who rules at God's pleasure. It means one whom God chose as opposed to one whom people chose. Right? Saul was the people's choice award. Even his name, Shaul, means asked for. Saul's name in Hebrew means you asked for it and you got it. Right? Shaul. David is not Shaul. He's not the people's choice award. He's Yahweh's choice. And he's planted over his people as Yahweh's choice. But not only is it about God choosing him, not only is it about the fact that he rules at God's pleasure, but it also means that he desires to rule according to God's will. Now, he desires to. He doesn't always succeed. We've seen that. And then the second thing we learn from David is that human power and power structures should serve as forerunners and foretastes rather than rivals of the consummated kingdom of God. This is what David understands, and this is what the rest of Scripture testifies about him. David came to us as a forerunner and foretaste of his greater son. And David knew that when Yahweh wanted him out of power, he should accept it. David knew when it was time to concede. David knew when it was time to stop vying for control and to let God do whatever God wanted to do next. Because David understood this. His role in the world in terms of power was to be a forerunner and a foretaste of the consummated kingdom of God. Something that he would not bring and could not bring. But something that one of his descendants did. And now the best any human government can ever do is precisely the same thing. Be a foretaste and a forerunner of the consummated kingdom of God. Because no human power structure is ever going to be able to do what God will be able to do when he reigns without rival through his exalted and returning son, Jesus Christ. And that has to be the context within which the church interprets power and politics and piety. And I think David is helpful as a way of getting at that. Now, let me just give you a quick preview about what we'll do tomorrow, and I'll let you all go, because I'm hungry, you're hungry, it's time to go eat. But what I want to do next time is I want to take a look at the book of Psalms, particularly the headings of the Psalms where David is mentioned. And I want to show you how, the, how that the worshipful setting of the Psalms is an interesting pushback on what we see in Samuel. 
and how it, it deliberately evokes these scenes from David's life, from Samuel, to, to, to in order to take David's exercise of power and to kind of sublimate it into worship, into liturgy. And I think something interesting and transformative happens when these episodes from David's life become the inspiration for Israel's liturgy. And I, I want to look at that with you uh, tomorrow. And so if you'd be interested in that and to see how politics and worship interface, then come back and we will have a grand old time uh, hashing that one out. All right. Thank you all for your kind attention. And next tomorrow, if you come back tomorrow, I promise I will leave time at the end for questions. I didn't get to do that this time because I wanted to get through all this. But I appreciate so much you being here and hope you'll come back tomorrow.